Welcome to Ira's Everything Bagel, where I talk with intriguing people about everything, their passions, pursuits, and points of view. I rarely have a guest on twice, but anytime I have an opportunity to have George Stevens Jr. on again, I jump at the chance. As I said in the first show, when you have someone who combines passion and principle in two power centers, Hollywood and Washington, D.C., through both a golden age and a time of simultaneous upheavals in civil rights and war, it's amazing my guests not only survived, but prospered and contributed to the culture of the nation. Academy Award recipient George Stevens Jr. is author of My Place in the Sun, Life in the Golden Age of Hollywood and Washington. And his audio book is now out and available at all the places you get your audio books from. For everything about George Stevens Jr., go to georgestevensjr.com. And George, welcome back to the show. Well, what a pleasure. Thank you, Ira. Thank you for coming on again. And what was the process like when you were recording the audiobook? How did that differ from all of the trials and tribulations of putting together your book? Obviously, the research, the writing, and I know you did that during COVID, which made it a little bit easier. <laughs> but I could imagine, I know this is a long question and a statement at the same time, but I could imagine it's rather laborious to record a memoir in an audiobook form. It was a new adventure. I had not anticipated how time-consuming it would be. Uh, though I took pleasure in it. You know, it was hard work. But I think I was in a recording studio for more than 50 hours to do this book. And being a filmmaker in the technical world, happily, my editor, whom I've never met, who was in Nashville, just a superb fellow who does a lot of the best books, said, I know you're a professional and you're used to editing. I will be patient with anything you want to throw at us. And he really was, because I found it necessary to listen to the whole thing, make notes, want to do little fixes, because sort of my mantra is, you know, that you just keep working on it until you get it right. So I really enjoyed it. And I'm so happy that people who are listening to it tell me that they are enjoying it, more importantly. Well, you've always had what I call this mellifluous voice, so I think it works <laughs> out very well. And I would imagine when you're recording an audiobook, and I was in my mind assuming that you might have done it at home, but you actually had to go to a recording studio to do it. Yeah, and they were very picky. My editor, Mark Gallup, said sometimes he'd, he'd give me notes, and he'd say, there's a noise, and I would listen to it, and I couldn't hear the noise. And he told me something very interesting. He said, audiobook listeners are very, I don't think he used the word picky, but <laughs> let's let that. And he said, our publishers get notes, people complaining about noises that they can hear, but I couldn't hear. Right. So did all of that. And uh, what was really interesting to me, uh, and it was, it was, it was satisfying, was that in going and reading the book, there were very few places where I had to change any wording. And importantly, there were no places where I felt, oh, gosh, I wish I'd have cut this or I'd said it differently. The, the COVID time that gave me the opportunity to really refine the book paid off for me. I, I, I loved the way it read and was happy to read it. And, and I think also, too, George, that because of your writing skills, 
even though you write for the eye is your writing for the eye is different from writing for the ear, but you were able to bridge that so you didn't have to make any changes when you did the audio version. Were, were you satisfied at the end of recording? And then I want to talk about some other things with you, but just this last point. When you put together the audiobook, were you satisfied at everything? And then your editor said, well, we need to change one thing. Or were you more picky than the editor? With the exception of the sounds that he heard that you well, didn't hear. He was mainly concerned about audio, but they also picked up little, you know, they questioned readings. So we were both making our lists. Right. And, and it was long, long lists. But every one of these little fixes, you know, I tell the story about, you know, working with my father and how he taught me respect for the audience. We can call it respect for the listener in terms of an audio book. When we were, I was 23 and we were working on the editing of Giant and it had been, you know, it had been going on for over a year and I was young and, you know, I had a golf game and stuff. <laughs> and, and at one point I just said to him, dad, I said, we've previewed this picture. It is, it is really so good. I think you just ought to put it out there. And he said, um, he said, well, when you think about how many man and woman hours are going to be spent watching this film over the years, don't you think it's worth a little more of our time to make it as good as it can be? You know, so that led, leads me to find every little fix and I could do this better. So it's a project and I'm glad I did it. No, absolutely. And there are so many lessons you learned from your father, as we talked about in our last conversation. I'm curious, with the COVID allowing you to write the memoir, because it freed you up time-wise, you were stuck in the house, do you think that COVID has had a lasting effect on the future of film in terms of the industry, people not going to movie theaters, people just staying home and watching streaming rather than going and experiencing what you and I and millions of people have experienced when you go to a great theater and see a great film and share it with the people in the audience. Well, it certainly has had an effect. Whether the effect will be permanent is still to be seen. Yes, you know, I am just, I, I so believe in the big screen being in the dark with other people as the true film experience, you know, to see that those, those figures that are bigger than you are rather than the little people across <laughs> the room on your screen. All right. So I very much hope that the, the, the movie going practice in theaters will become robust again, but it's, it's an uncertainty. It is. You mentioned your father a moment ago and the editing of Giant and how he was going to take a little bit more time, even though you were anxious to get to the golf course. Do you think he would marvel at the technical aspects of film today, that it's digital and what was considered laborious in those days with cut and paste? And I use that term, but yeah. as opposed to in the movieola and all of that, as opposed to now using a computer and being able to change things digitally, uh, both visually yeah. and audibly. Yeah, he was always on the cutting edge of technology. He had the first Polaroid camera, and he would just be fascinated. 
you know, and I think also just computers and digital, you know, he left us before all of that was on the scene. How about you? You've seen the transition. You you were there pre-digital and you're here post-digital. Yeah. So do you see it as an effective tool working in the digital format? I know that there was a concern that from the film point of view, the visual point of view, you couldn't replicate what celluloid did using yeah. digital tools, but it seems to have improved considerably in the last 15 years or so. It has, and, and, and things are possible that weren't before, particularly retrospectively and the restoration of films. Uh, since you and I talked, we did a restoration. It was in progress when we last spoke of Giant. Steven Spielberg called me one day and said, your father's Giant is a masterpiece. He said, with the digital tools, we can improve those overlapping dissolves that are less perfect than they were when the film first came out. So we did that, you know, and, and, and we were able to make Giant look just as good as it did on the first night. And we premiered that showing on digital, which now can assume the characteristics of film mm -hmm. at the Chinese theater in, a, in the IMAX theater where before IMAX, 65 years ago, Giant had premiered, you know, and, and to see that film restored in that way with a huge audience in the dark, laughing, responding, <laughs> you know, it, it was really a thrill of this idea of the test of time being the measure of a work of art. When you see it in that context, you're seeing it both restored and you also remember your father while you're watching it as well, I would think that you would be. So I do. Yeah. And, 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 and it happens. You know, the digital tools can be a little dangerous because it gives the operator the chance to make everything darker, everything lighter, louder. And it's so important. And I am the last person involved who has a a quite precise recollection of how that picture looked and sounded. And the mission of the people at Warner Brothers and at Martin Scorsese and Stevens Film Foundation, who collaborated on this, was to make this picture look the way it looked when George Stevens said, all right, it's done. Were you the last eyes on it before it was totally finished? With him, yes. Right. And, and I am, I, I guess, the survivor of the people who were around and worked on it and really knew what the picture looked like. And then, of course, right after the screening, you went and played around at golf. <laughs> <laughs> that too. Yeah. <laughs> I want to go back to the audiobook for a second. I know that the book itself, and it's an, a very good read. I recommend it highly for people who are interested in all elements of what I mentioned in the introduction. Not just film, not just talent, but politics and government and power centers and quality. And all those elements all come together in your memoir. Do you think that people will get that flavor as well from 
the audio book, I, I'm, I'm going to say you're going to say yes, because clearly you're, you're voicing it. So it's even more of your voice than even just the writing. Yes. And I'm hearing from people who are very uh, engaged with it and moved by it. And they laugh with it, they tell me. And that is great. And so it is, you know, a choice. The, the book has well, 110 wonderful photographs. You know, the audio version doesn't. But there is something very special, I think, about, in, in, in my experience, hearing David McCullough or Will Smith, for two examples, read their books. You know, they really, that voice, and I think in the case particularly of when it's an autobiographical piece, you are hearing the author and the subject of the book. I think it's a little different for you in this sense that most celebrities, when they record a memoir, the public is familiar with their voice, so they are more emotionally connected. Not everybody knows your voice. It's a wonderful voice, but not as many people would know that as, as a major star because you worked in the background in, in, in so many decades. And yes, you, you appeared on screen and you appeared on the radio, but not to the extent that some of these celebrities do. But I think what comes through on the audiobook is the integrity of the book and through your voice, because you know that what you're reading is your story and your life. And so that authenticity, I think, makes a big difference to people when they listen. I hope so. And I think, too, that those who have read the book would buy the audio book just to have a companion piece to it, because it is a period of time in America, and it involves so many different levels and so many different topics that you would want to have that as a companion piece. I would, I would again, speculate that, and I'm talking way more than you here, but I would also speculate that researchers in libraries and colleges, universities will use the audiobook as well to get the flavor of some of the material that they would get from the, reading the book as well. Yes, I think so. And I realized recording the book in a way that I hadn't when I was writing it, why people seem so taken with it. Elizabeth, my wife and I, our experience in Hollywood with American Film Institute and other projects, our experience in Washington and politics, and our experience while I was producing and she was doing the Saturday night dinners for the honorees, that we honored 197 of the most talented people in, in the world of culture and the arts. And I think it is that what, that is what makes this book, you know, our amazing friends and those experiences of why it appeals to people so much. You're right. And I left out the world of personalities and actors and actresses and all of that. And that's part of that story as well. And politicians too, because, and presidents. So yes, it's a major, it's a major story. Do you see the memoir becoming a film? Well, I, I wouldn't mind, but I'm not going to make it. <laughs> that, that, that would be such an act of narcissism, <laughs> even for me. <laughs> and, and you probably wouldn't want to play yourself either because you'd rather be out on the golf course. So have somebody else play you in that sense. So. With all the people that you've met over the years and the decades in all elements of your career and your life, 
who besides your father had the most impact on you? Was there one other person or two other people? Two other people. At a changing point, at a, at a time of change in my life, where I had been up until the age of 29, I had been working in Hollywood, been in the Air Force, working with my father on uh, Shane, a giant, and the diary of Anne Frank, and I was directing Peter Gunn and Alfred Hitchcock Presents. You know, I was having this kind of wonderful career, although from time to time, kind of wondering if my destiny in life was to work very hard and become the second best film director in my family. <laughs> <laughs> and then Edward R. Murrow came into the picture, the great broadcaster, man of such integrity and talent. And he asked me to come to Washington and join the Kennedy administration and head the motion picture division of USIA that he was running, telling America's story abroad on the voice of America and with films and other means. And that was just such a, it opened doors. It gave me a new wife, gave me a wife, my first wife, <laughs> and, uh, and this opportunity to make these films, 300 films a year, to show overseas telling about America and our foreign policy. And Edward R. Murrow was a tremendous influence. He was a man of such integrity and had a quality of leadership and humor and just, you know, and he was put me in a position to do this, was supportive and nurturing in all good ways as was President Kennedy. And though on a less close basis, though we were acquainted and we spoke from time to time, just to have those influence of those two men and my father at that time of my life and career was tremendously important. President Kennedy was inspiring in many ways, but he won he used to, his, his speeches, and he, he used to have wonderful quotes in his speeches. And he was fond of the uh, speaking of the Greek definition of happiness. The fullest use of one's powers along lines of excellence. And, you know, I had written that down. And then suddenly I realized, here I was, in this most exciting time to be in the federal government, perhaps ever, <laughs> and uh, with all these extraordinary people around. And I was making these films, and I was, at, at their invitation, earning that kind of happiness, working my hardest to produce excellence for that administration. So, and... If you just want another John F. Kennedy quote that I wrote down that had consequences, when I had the idea for doing the Kennedy Center Honors, I had an office in the Kennedy Center in Washington. I went downstairs to see the head of the Kennedy Center, Roger Stevens, no relation. <laughs> and, and we had just produced AFI's 10th anniversary in the Kennedy Center Opera House. It was on CBS was kind of put AFI on the map nationally. And I, I said to Roger, I said, you ought to have your own show for the Kennedy Center. 
And he said, he had a hard way of talking, he says, do you have any IDs? I said, yeah, I, I, I do have an idea. And I said, I'll, I'll provide it in one sentence. There are words carved in the marble on the walls of this building, a memorial to President Kennedy, his words. I look forward to an America that will not be afraid of grace and beauty, that will reward achievement in the arts the way we reward achievement in business and statecraft. And therein was the idea for the Kennedy Center Honors. So those were the two men that most influenced you. Are you, with your perspective on life and and country and career, are you optimistic about the future of the country? I asked you earlier about whether you were optimistic about the future of cinema. What about in just the country itself? All through my life and career, much of which was in Washington, uh, in touch with, I guess, six or seven presidents, I never questioned, never occurred to me that our democracy was fragile, not even during Watergate. You know, the senators on both sides of the aisle saw it. The Justice Department had integrity, was proceeding. And people kind of played by the norms and rules. I have a little concern in my mind of how we are going to restore our democratic form of government to the stability that it deserves and requires. Do you think cinema can play a part in that? Uh, yes. In fact, I have, I'm, I'm working on a very ambitious film idea that I cannot <laughs> disclose to you at this moment. That's okay. I understand. But I, it is in very much in that vein, a story of great scope and importance that I think uh, would, would give comfort to viewers today and inspiration to see how, how this great democracy can work in fraught times. What keeps you going, George? You have had such an illustrious career. I'm not pandering to you. I just am acknowledging the reality of what you've done over the decades. But what keeps you going now? You mentioned you just wrote the memoir. You just recorded the audiobook, which again is available wherever audiobooks are available. And now you're working on this project, which you're not sharing with me, which I understand because it's not at that point. But what keeps you going in terms of productivity, writing, thinking, all of that? You know, I, I I quoted at the end of my book, Bertrand Russell, <laughs> an essay he'd written many years ago on the something of being 90. And he talked about how, I, I can't quote it with, with any exactness, but how of life being productive, working on things of importance is a very stimulating factor. and. You know, I, I would have done what I've done most, almost everything I've done in my life. I would have done if they hadn't paid me. I did it because <laughs> I loved it. And so, you know, I get up in the morning and I like to do this stuff. Does your wife have patience for you? Totally. <laughs> Which is a great gift. Uh, absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. Your book, when it came out, was My Place in the Sun, Life in the golden age of Hollywood and Washington, and of course now the audiobook. But do you feel that you're totally out of the shadow of your father? 
Yeah, I think I do. I think I do. Yes. Um, I mean, I, I think, you know, particularly with the writing of this book and the response to it, you know, I loved being in his shadow. I mean, I was close to him. And it was he, when I, when Edward R. Murrow first spoke with me about this, which was kind of stunning, a new idea and very flattering, I told him I couldn't do it. And I said, I'm just about to start. We had just finished the diary of Anne Frank and I had shot the location scenes in Amsterdam. And I was like my, very much my father's junior partner. And he was starting the greatest story ever told. And I didn't feel I could leave him. And it was only when I told him of the meeting with Murrow, we were walking across the 20th century Fox lot to lunch. I remember it <laughs> as if it were yesterday. He stopped walking and looked at me. He said, I think you may have to do it. He was a father seeing what the son could not see, that there was perhaps other opportunities for me apart from him. And, you know, that generosity of spirit was, of course, made him a wonderful father. And you went from one man of integrity to working for another man of integrity. So that worked out well, too. Yeah. Well, I think that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been Academy Award recipient George Stevens, Jr. He's author of My Place in the Sun, Life in the Golden Age of Hollywood and Washington. And his audiobook is now out and available at all the places you get your audiobooks from. For everything about George Stevens, Jr., go to georgestevensjr.com. And there's a lot of stuff on the website. Check it out. George, thanks for being on the show again. I, I love talking with you. I had a good time. Thank you. And join us every Thursday for a new schmear on Ira's Everything Bagel.